York and Chapel presents Brands That Matter, the weekly podcast that explores companies whose products, policies, or practices make the world a better place. Now here's your host, John Rarick. Welcome back to Brands That Matter. Our guest today has found a uniquely alternative form of fertilizer that could potentially lessen the negative impact of chemical fertilizers commonly used in agriculture today. I'm really happy to have with us today Omni Earth founder and CEO Joe Walker. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you, John. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate your time. Joe, really fascinating business model, and I, I, I know there's – we've seen your site, but I know there's a story behind that, and we really want to hear it from you. So tell us how you got started. It's, it's quite a, an interesting uh, start. I, I had just got home from serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I, I knew I had the entrepreneurial spirit. I had no idea what, what that would look like in terms of a business. Came home with nothing but just some enthusiasm, um, and but really no direction. And uh, I was talking to my grandfather one day, who was kind of the the, the starting point on, on this journey of mine. And I was talking to him because he's a very successful entrepreneur. And obviously, I came to him for some wisdom, for some guidance. And he said that he had heard of this this concept or this idea of using essentially worms to recycle certain materials and, and their waste, their manure or their byproduct was actually a very rich, healthy source of fertilizer. And most importantly, 100% organic, which is a huge thing right now for consumers and, and for businesses producing you know, produce and, and other materials. Well, it, it was not easy getting started. It's, obviously, it was a very unique business model. And I think with, with any business, in order for it to get it off the ground, you have to invest a lot of time and energy. And that's exactly what I did. I invested, even to this day, probably over 20,000 hours of, of research and development. Uh, I took on two part-time jobs, one as a soil analysis technician, uh, the other as just a simple lawn care specialist. Uh, between the two, I was able to, you know, gather a lot of industry knowledge. I took, I, I actually rearranged my my classes at at college at BYU to focus more on plant propagation and soil science. Uh, I talked to professors and I called other people who were in that industry as a business, as a company, picked their brains, asked them questions, and absolutely just absorbed as much knowledge. Looked up research articles. I just did pretty much everything in my power to just obtain as much knowledge and, and what I was going to pursue. Because if I was going to do it, you have to do it right, and I have to be, you know, the the best and, and you know, really get a toehold into that market space. I, I think at about 1,000 hours, I had my first prototype, meaning I had done enough research, ha- had acquired a certain number of worms, uh, and had had uh, fed them, you know, certain kinds of, of materials to produce my product or their manure, and that was kind of the, the you know where it all started. Is I had to test it, and I had to see how viable it was, you know, how good how good for plants was it really. Uh, and at the time, I was working for a lawn care company, and and the CEO and I were were pretty close, so I I had him test it on some of his clients' lawns and then track the, the results over the next year. 
while that while those tests were being analyzed, I decided to go ahead and, and reach out to business competitions. And Utah is actually very rich for business competitions. I, I believe they have more than any other state in the country. And I just I applied to just about every one I could qualify for. And uh, it was through those competitions where I, I gained a lot of exposure. I gained two business partners. Uh, I had won a number of them. I gained a, a customer base through it, through its exposure. It really put me on, on, a, on the threshold of becoming an actual company. I, uh, I decided to, of course, keep testing uh, the, the concept. The, the biggest variable I, I, was, I was being challenged with was what to feed the worms. As you know, there's a almost unlimited amount of things you could feed worms, uh, or, or rather you think you could. <laughs> sure. I, I think I killed my weight in worms getting started. I can't even <laughs> tell you how many pounds of worms I, I just couldn't keep alive through temperature or, or not the right moisture content, uh, the food being toxic to them for whatever reason. Uh, and that's where most of my research really came down to was what could they eat? But then now that, but when I could figure out what they could eat, what were the right ratios? And that's what came to be my formula, which I have today. And I think I've tried, I can't even, can't even number how many possibilities and, and what I learned would be the most advantageous. Uh, but, but through this pro- process, a year went by, I, I had, you know, modified it, gotten better. Um, but, but by the time that year had come, from the time I started testing for the lawn care company, I got my results back. And, and that's where I finally realized that there was something big here. The CEO of the lawn care company came back to me and said that he, had, he hadn't experienced anything quite like this before. Uh, in Utah, uh, especially, as it being a very, very dry state, I think it's in the top five driest states in the country, most people who have lawns exhaust thousands and thousands of gallons of water. I, I have to I wish I had the numbers on me, but I believe the average, the average Utah home uses about half a swimming pool, not, not, a, not an Olympic-sized swimming pool, but a regular community pool, a 25-yard long pool, Half of that they use towards their lawns each year. That's, that's per household. Amazing. That's amazing, Joe. And I can imagine that the com- commercial spaces like parks and golf courses must use even more. Yeah, they're so much more severe. I, I was I couldn't believe it. And it's a two-part problem. One, of course, is the climate, which a lot of your water never gets to the plant because it just it just dries up and it and it goes into the atmosphere. And then the soil has a hard time retaining the moisture as well. So the grass is just doesn't get a chance. And that, and as a result, you're having to put more water in to get the same effects. Um, but what, what the CEO found is that the 10 clients he had, that he used the castings, and that's what the term's called, worm castings or worm manure on, were able to cut their water consumption literally in half. They had a 50% efficiency rate on the water. And uh, and it was from there I realized that the castings were changing soil structure. They not only uh, had in their in the castings a rich portfolio of nutrients, but contained uh, a certain structure of it. I'm not trying to get too technical, but it, it holds water, but not too tightly that the plant can't obtain the water. And anyways, it was from there I thought, okay, well, we need to figure out what else this stuff can do. So from there, I started, you know, simply just donating it to um, 
to greenhouses and to plant propagators just to simply say, run some tests. Let me know what you find. Uh, I had I had uh, I had donated some to a professional tomato grower, which I didn't know they were out there, but they are. And uh, he he noted that the water conservation benefits were just the same. But then he also noted that the plants grew faster, and in some cases, two or three times faster than what he previously recorded. And then I haven't gone this far, but he has said that the tomatoes even taste better. They have they have richer flavors in it. I haven't gone as far as to scientifically analyze that concept, but what I have documented is the fact that it does conserve. It cuts back about 50% of your water cost, and in some cases, it does increase plant growth by two or three percent, or That's I'm sorry, two or three times over. Um, and it's 100% organic. Uh, and I, I often tell people at my business competitions, I, I know this sounds like a load of crap, but it actually is. It quite literally is a load of crap. <laughs> that's what <laughs> that's what makes this work. But uh, I think I think the the biggest thing is is the um, we live in a, a a day and age where recycling is is ever more important. The fact that with how much waste we're producing, we need to become more clever in figuring a way to to resurrect it into something else, as opposed to just letting it sit for who knows how long before it can be reused or at least not harmful for the environment. And uh, worms have that ability, in not all cases, but in some very, very, very uh, critical circumstances, uh, they play a vital role in this ecosystem. A lot of people don't know this, but Charles Darwin studied worms for 40 years. In fact, he wrote a book about them. It was the last book he wrote before he passed away. The book is fascinating. I mean, I guess for me it is. I don't know. A lot of people probably don't want to read a book about worms, but <laughs> Charles Darwin was, was captivated by, by this organism, this creature. And uh, one phrase in the book that, that he wrote, which I've never forgotten, and he says, he said, worms are perhaps the most significant creature on earth. He called them the recyclers of the earth. Uh, the fact that they're able to, to restore soil uh, to a greater sense um, and it's just been, it's been absolutely uh, just a, a great journey. I've the biggest thing that helped leverage me from just being a you know a really tiny boutique company to to something a little more you know uh, with a little more vibrato was 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 the business competitions. Um, I've been all over the country uh, with doing business competitions. I've I've won a number of them, and the I think one of the biggest things that that helped it give give me exposure was at one of my competitions, uh, a, a journalist was there and uh, had recorded, uh, you know, pretty much the my business model and, and had posted it on, on the Salt Lake City uh, Tribune. And from there, the New York Times picked it up and had posted it. Uh, Yahoo News, USA Today uh, had featured it as well. Um, it, it had got quite a bit of exposure. I think ABC also uh, also had, had, had uh, also copied in, in the article into his, his news search. And as a result, I had all these, you know, customers come in who obviously didn't, didn't know about me, but because of the story and because of, of how clean and, and uh, well, unique of a business model, they had, you know, ordered some product. And that's what really launched the company uh, into what it is today. Well, Joe, Joe um, you and, mentioned a couple things earlier that one of them that I want, I think is a key takeaway that I'd like um, young entrepreneurs to hear is, 
the amount of time you invested, your own personal time into getting this off the ground. A lot of times we'll speak to entrepreneurs and they'll say, hey, you know, I, I, I just don't have the, the capital to put into this. And what they don't realize, and I think you've proven it, is that's just part of the equation. The, the, that, that desire to want to pour 100% of your energy behind your awesome idea is often what gets it going and gets people noticing. And what we've discovered is, and I think you have too, is the money will typically find its way to you when somebody sees you have a good idea and you're willing to pour your entire life into it. Yeah, that's 100% correct. Money is an aspect, but it's, it's, not, it's not where business lives or dies. The money comes when you're when you're when you're doing it right. I think the biggest thing that makes a company survive or die is how much backbone do you have? Because it's not easy. I, I can't even tell you the number of times where I doubted myself or, or doubted the model or doubted the idea, and, and it was hard because it's such a fringe science. You know, it, it, they have no one to, and I, and then, then then there's the other end of the spectrum where there's so many competitors, right? You also have doubts, like how 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 on earth am I going to get a toehold in the sea of my competitors? And uh, it it doesn't really come down to money. That doesn't really make you uh, win or lose in most cases. It's how much backbone, how much how much gusto do you have? Uh, and that's that's what usually makes a company soar and become something that well becomes reality or it just stays as a you know a concept that's right and, joe, uh, joe you've got this yeah, cr- you've got this sensational idea but i'm super curious like is it scalable and if so how how do you bring this wider and how do you get it out to the masses yeah that so that's one of the one of the most asked questions that even at my business competitions is you know this isn't like a a product where you can just manufacture it will in a factory right this hinges on a living organism's uh, pr- productivity, um, and it's and that was one reason that got me started on this is is how, just how uh, hungry these worms are. It just shocked me. The, the specific breed I use is called the African Nightcrawler, and there's other people who do worm castings. And and out of all the people out there, there's only two breeds that people use. The reason why I use the African Nightcrawlers is because of how, how vivacious they are in their appetite. They will eat their body weight every 24 hours. And I've, I've, I've worked with the environment to get them to eat about 1.5 because obviously the more they eat, the more you can extract and then obviously convert over to, to product, to sales. Um, so if you have, you know, let's just say you have one pound of worms just to make it easy, you're going to expect one pound a day. Of, of castings, of finished products. In addition to that, how they multiply is quite, is quite intriguing. Each worm possesses male and female uh, sex organs. And so when two worms mate, it's not just one that will produce eggs. It's actually both of them that will. And they will produce, uh, they will produce enough eggs so that essentially every four to five months, your population will double. So if you have one pound of worms in four or five months' time, if you're keeping them healthy and, and the environment is at equilibrium, you can expect after five months' time to have two pounds of worms, and now you're producing two pounds a day. So if you start off at 100 pounds of worms, you're going to have 100 pounds a, a day, and then, of course, that increases up to up to five months, where then you're, you're pretty much at two pounds a day or 200 pounds a day because your population has doubled. At some point, 
it's not hard keeping them alive. It's hard maintaining the population growth because they get a bit, it gets a bit scary how much they begin to crowd their environment. And anyways, I had to figure that out too, that the kind of, the kind of uh, spaces I, I contain them in, uh, you know, what that looks like, the sizes and the ventilation and the moisture content. Uh, it was all, it's a ton of research. And that's again, how I killed my weight in worms getting started is there's just so many ways to go wrong. And again, that was kind of a, a good, a good thing too because it's barriers to entry. Not everyone can do this. It's, it's not, it's, you know, it requires a, a, a careful hand on the, on the throttle. You got to make sure that you, you know, maintain everything uh, constantly. But anyways, but that's how you scale it is you just maintain the worms and then they just, they literally take off. That's amazing. And, and what, what, getting this up and running, you talked about some of the obstacles, particularly operationally with, you know, trying to get that optimal environment for the worms, not only to thrive, but to produce enough. Um, what other obstacles from a business standpoint did you face when you were getting things up and running? Well, oh, I think another one was um, we, we, patents, because I'd never done that before. Um, and this, with enough exposure we had, we were starting to get companies that were maybe interested in partnering and or acquiring. And whenever you have that conversation, you got to make sure you have patents, right? Just to keep yourself protected or heck, even when you have employees, just to make sure that there's a sense of propriety uh, to keep this from being, being leaked or exposed. And, and I'll be honest, I had zero experience on that. And that's where my business partners came in. Um, and I guess that leads me to the next thing too, is, uh, finding business partners, if and when, you know, for those young entrepreneurs out there, you're considering bringing people on board. That's a very difficult dynamic to maintain. I've only ever done it twice, uh, and I, I know I'm young, so I know twice isn't very many. And uh, the first time we're with these two gentlemen, and uh, it was absolutely a slam dunk idea. Uh, two dynamic men, um, both both of which live in Utah, and found me through a business competition. And the second time I did it, which was last year, uh, was a, was just a really bad idea. It just wasn't a good fit. Um, and that that also can rattle a company. It can split it to its core. Um, you just have to you have to realize before you do business with someone, what are your core principles? What does your business model look like? What are you, what are you willing to negotiate on, and what are you not willing to negotiate on? You have to know yourself and know your business so well that before you, well, get into bed with someone, that you know it's, it's going to be a good fit or not. And you have to have you know documents in place to ensure that you're not going to be taken advantage of. Um, it's really hard. But I will say that I could not have gotten this far without my two business partners. There's just mm-hmm. no way. But both of them, you know, are both, both of them in their 50s have started numerous companies beforehand and just had so much experience that I couldn't even come close to having that within a, even a couple of years. I brought to the table a lot of the science and the proprietary information, and they brought to the table a strong business model, business ethics, business principles, uh, supply channels, all this stuff that they had acquired over years and years of practice that they able to, you know, scale my, my you know, prototype into a full-fledged company. Yeah, that's a subject that comes up on this show quite often is, how, the, the the idea of partnership, and I think you nailed it. The idea is to to look at the gaps in your own skill set, 
and find people that fill those gaps because obviously you know not everybody is is an operational master and a marketing master or vice versa or finance or hr like you, when you find people that can that can complement each other's skills i think that's a real plus it's not it's not all about who's coming in with how much capital it's really like what do you bring to the table hey tell us what what's on the roadmap for omni earth in 2020 <laughs> Well, so recently we've been doing a lot of research with a Fortune 500 company. It's kind of our biggest lead we've had for the last two years. Uh, we, we both have signed NDAs and, and various non, non-compete, non-disclosure, so I can't say which company it is. Um, but they, it, it's, it's quite remarkable, and I hope it leads to something better. They, they have in their portfolio, in their assets, a way to grow plants using special custom LED lights. Plants don't take the full spectrum of light. I don't know if a lot of people know that. They only take in certain spectrums. And so this company figured out that if you literally customize that wavelength of light to certain colors and at the certain times that the plant needs it, you can accelerate plant growth. And so between their LED lights and my and my fertilizer, we, we've actually made world records in terms of plant growth, uh, in terms of wheat, grass. We're literally harvesting, I know this sounds crazy, but we have it all documented. We're able to harvest wheat from seed in seven days. And it's 100% organic. Um, it actually, we're actually not using any soil. We're actually liquefying my, my fertilizer so that the plant medium is 100% liquid and it can be grown indoors. So this could literally be grown in the Sahara Desert. You just got to build a warehouse, you know, have solar panels. We're trying to move away from 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 soil because in terms of population growth for the world, we're running out of land. And so the only way to make this work in the next 40 years for the, for society is figuring out a way to not have to be attached to soil in order to grow plants. So we're literally growing plants on a liquid-based medium with special LED lights in a contained facility so you don't need any pesticides or insecticides. And as a result... We're literally just pampering the plant and giving it exactly what it needs when it needs it. Um, and we're, so we've been working with them for the last two years trying to um, come up with the system. Uh, obviously, we've, we've talked about partnering together. We've talked acquisitions. We've taken it really slow. Um, it has slowed down recently just because um, a lot of this company does business in China. And obviously, between trade, the trade wars and now the coronavirus outbreak, their stock is not doing very well, and so they're they're kind of they're kind of pulling back on a lot of their extracurricular activities just to make sure that their budget is sound and safe. Um, but we've been doing that for the last two years, and we're hoping that by end of this year we're we've kind of wrapped up all the testing, and then we can figure out a game plan on on how the two companies would like to associate with each other moving forward. Wow, fascinating, Joe. How can our listeners learn more about the work you're doing there? You know, I, I mostly just mostly just have a, a, a website, uh, Omni.Earth. I'm actually not very good at social media. It's not one of my strengths. I have a Facebook page. I just don't. I just don't post on it often. Uh, Omni.Earth though has not only all all the about uh, of the company, but I have posted in case readers are interested just to learn more about the science of, of worm castings. Uh, just a slew of biz, uh, not business models, research articles that have been done around the world 
on the subject of vermicomposting or, or worm castings uh, that they could, you know, they could delve deeper into the science. And uh, I mean, cause there's so much to it. I haven't even talked bacteria and, and how that helps. With well, plants. I, I did. So che- I, I checked it out, Joe. There's a wealth of information on your site for our listeners, and we're going to make sure we put links to that page as well, where people can access those articles if they're interested in reading them. But really just wanted to congratulate you on what a great start you're off to. And, you know, just a fascinating business model. And I I can tell from the energy you bring to the table that you guys are poised for some big things. Omni Earth, another great example of a company doing their part to make the world a better place. Joe Walker, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, John. Appreciate it in your time. Join us next week for another episode of Brands That Matter. And please, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about York and Chapel, visit yorkandchapel.com.